In white culture, they talk a lot with, with this fella. In our culture, we don't have to use it to communicate. But I'll use it for the sake of today's protocol. But in that quiet time, what I was saying from my court to my mob from here is my people are from this country and I feel blessed to be connected to them always no matter what clothes I'm wearing no matter what room I'm in no matter which language I'm talking um, no matter who's listening to me or watching me and I will always pay respects to the ancestors and the old people of any country that I'm on, but especially my own. So my name is Kylie. Kylie in Nyungar language means boomerang or small boomerang. Kylie is a name that is quite common in Australia because it is an item from this country. We had a murich born, a really good wood, solid wood, to make Kylie within trade. Um, I, I can be a weapon or an item, depending on how people want to use me or abuse me. <laughs> But, um, but I've always felt a strong connection here to this country. Um, for people who may be interested in my connection to this space, <coughs> um, and I don't mean this space is in, inside the walls, I mean Nyungar country. Um, on my mat matriarchal line of the family, I am from the Benel and Collard families. Um, on my grandfather's side, I'm from the, the farmer and uh, Davis and Coyne side, from further down south. But I look each and every one of you in the, in the eye. I look, look at each and every one of you to say, um, you know, enjoy your time here with us tonight. I often feel like it's not my individual responsibility to say you are welcome. Those words are something that you should feel. If you feel like you're uncomfortable somewhere, then maybe you shouldn't be there. If you feel comfortable being somewhere, then perhaps, you know, you're in the right place. But, um, but for now, I appreciate you being here. And on behalf of my people, I ask that you be respectful wherever you go in our country. And, and that extends to our people and, uh, and our totems, the creatures that we share this environment with. It is not just about the human race, because as far as I'm concerned, that's the only race on this planet, is human beings. Um, guessing you haven't heard a welcome like this before. <coughs> um, I'm thrilled that I can say to you, I'm happy to see you and just go steady on our country.
so we're not gonna do um, uh, sort of serious protocol business with introductions and this is who you're talking to, Google is your friend, you know who's sitting in front of you. Um, what we wanted to do was have a bit of a, have a, bit of a yarn. Uh, and we got together a few, uh, about two weeks ago at the Fantastic Center for Stories where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, a fantastic place on Aberdeen uh, Street that you are welcome to visit at any time, uh, which is a place uh, of stories, a place that would not be possible if we were not on Nungabuja. Um, it is a place that is deeply connected um, to the history of where we, we stand, that learns from what it uh, means to be and live amongst the oldest storytellers in the world who have the best contemporary stories as well, as my, as my brother Ron will tell you. There's no such thing as yesterday's people. Often people who are indigenous, black, whatever you want to call us, are called yesterday's people. We're not yesterday's people. B-I-P-O-C, something Yeah, something, I don't know, I can't keep track uh, of all the word soup, the jargon. So we wanted to have a bit of a, a conversation that uh, flows, that isn't just um, standing up and telling a story. That's important. But we also wanted to talk together to one another. Uh, and so that's why we got the couches in. We said, let's get some couches in and let's be comfortable. Um, we had some of us known each other, but when we sat together to think about what we wanted to make this space, what became clear is that we also didn't really want to have a conversation amongst black people just about race, because that never happens. It just, just does not happen in real life, in real black people's lives that we just sit around talking about race. <laughs> that would be a bit ridiculous. So, so we didn't want to do that. We wanted to like talk about stuff and tell some stories, but also then just reflect on things and laugh. One of the things that has happened since, uh, since the murder of George Floyd on the 25th of May um, is that uh, <coughs> people in Australia have had to be reminded of the many names of Aboriginal people, of indigenous people who have been killed in similar circumstances here. So that name sparks a kind of collective eulogizing of many, many people uh, in some ways whose names are too numerous for us to list. And so I don't want to get into the death roll of listing the names because in some ways what we don't want to do is to think only about blackness as death, even as we recognize that all too often black people are subject to violence. So we wanted to have a conversation that kind of acknowledges what is terrible in the world, but acknowledges that one of the things that is not terrible in the world is to be black in all of its different flavors and shapes. And so we want to talk about <coughs> joy and hilarity and sadness and pain, but we wanted to have a conversation that in many ways mirrors the world as we want it to be. And the world we want to have is not a world that is dominated by black death and black grief and violence against black people. That's not the world that we want to live in. We have to acknowledge that the world in which we now live is one that unfortunately is too full of too many of those things but it's also so full of so many other deep and wonderful and rich things. 
So we just thought we'd have a bit of a yarn, throw out some conversations, have a little chat, have a few of you join in when you feel like. And once in a while, I'll ask the people to pause and um, someone will stand up and have a little spotlight and say a few things, a few home truths. And then we will react to and respond to what it is that people have to say. So that's, that's how the, the, um, the day is going to go. I'm supposed to say thank you. And I am grateful to the Beaufort Rotary Club for sponsoring this event. This is a fantastic space. So we want to say thanks before we, we begin. Thank you so much to the team at the Center for Stories um, for putting this on, for making this possible. Uh, uh, thank you to all of you who have um, bought tickets because um, it all goes to Aboriginal Legal um, Services. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the business. That's the business end of it. Now I think we would just want to have a a bit of a, a talk, and I want to start by asking each of you all how today has been. And I'll start with you, Ron. <laughs> in your pink, in your, in your pink dashiki. You took twenty when you pink. <laughs> how you doing? Today? Yeah, today. It's a hard day today. Be honest, brother. Why on a hard day today? Uh, my day's hard because it, two years ago I lost my father mm. and I get to remember that today. Mm. But I've done that reasonably well. Mm. And I turn older tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> happy birthday. So jamming those things together is often a squeeze. But that's life, I guess. Yeah. How you doing, Colin? My turn. Yeah, just yeah. how um, you doing? Good. It's been a good day. It's been kind of um, a lot of fault, you know, kind of bit of nervousness. It's been a long time coming to get to this point in time, but I woke up today, I was still black. That's never a surprise. Well, it, you know, it's never a surprise, but, but yeah, I'm just um, overwhelmed, really, by the response and the fact that so many people here, what stemmed from a, a tiny idea and speaking to fabulous guys at Centre for Stories again, that just allowed this thing to happen and the way it kind of... Um, just cultivated and meeting you, you guys and it's come together so I'm just overwhelmed, happy and just really looking forward to getting into this. Colin is the one who put this uh, whole, this was his brainchild, his it's brain. His fault. His fault. <laughs> yeah. Blame him. It's his seed plant. <laughs> How are you going Kylie? Me, my day. Well today folks, um, The joyous part of my everyday is having our son wake up and go, Oh, look, Mummy, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> we made a conscious effort to not teach our son to say good morning. Because we're constantly mourning. We are in mourning, constantly. So being a language person, I endeavour to encourage particular words within the people in the groups that I'm associated with or around, as much as they will tolerate me. Um... Today I spent time with Yibiyang, Nichibao, Nanyimam Yok, my auntie. She's one of our custodians of Nyungar language and she's been teaching children language, Nyungar language for decades. So I had the privilege, the great privilege always to spend uh, time in her company alongside Clint Bracknell, um, her granny, who I happen to be married to. So we, we discussed um, doing some webisodes in Nyungar language. So that was a part of my day today, Sasonke. I a uh, little bit sleep deprived, not because of my toddler, but the moon. Um, what else? Looking forward to coming here to to be myself in front of people, alongside these really good people, um, to ooze the positivity of being 
uh, a shade other than white. And um, and what else about my day? Um, just catching up with Deadly New Armor, really, and just some sharing some good vibes because we need that vibration in the world. And then trying to find some clothes to fit into to be here. And <laughs> get comfortable in marriage and with a little kid. You don't have time, you don't have time to... <laughs> COVID kilos. But other than that, I just as I arrived, I it's, it's kind of serendipitous that this is the first time I'm here in a long, long time because my career started at a place called Yiriakin. And... Uh, <coughs> Yuriakin Noongar Theatre, it was called at the time, and just around the corner, Claysbrook Road, so I'm sort of circling back as a boomerang would, oh. so to speak. So. Is that where Yuriakin started? It's a No, it started out of Subiaco Arts Centre, and then with the great help of a uh, company, Barking Gecko, and then it had its yeah, first standalone space here in, okay. in Claysbrook. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but that's sort of my day, in a nutshell, what about your day? My day, I fell asleep before I got here. I'm exhausted. I am exhausted. I'm exhausted, I think, because I feel like I was talking to my sister in South Africa, and we were talking about how there is this feeling that this COVID thing is like, just, who knows? It feels, some days it feels unending. It feels Mm. like what is actually happening? When will I be able to see? And I'm worried about my Nunga family in Victoria right now. Mm. You know, That's right. her daughter's over there. One That's of my, right. she's a twin. One of my cousins. That's right. And I got some farmer family over there. Some Winmar family. All That's the fo- right. all the football side of my family are all over there. <laughs> all right. the AFL mob. But That's yeah, right. it's it's prevalent. It's wild. So yeah, I fell asleep, <laughs> but I woke up in time <laughs> to see everyone here. <laughs> um, but bef- but yesterday I had an interesting. Uh, was it yesterday? Day before yesterday I had an interesting. Time. I was talking to people at the P- P- police and nurses bank, PNN bank. They wanted to talk about racism. And I was reminded of a story that I hadn't thought about in a really long time. Uh, it was, uh, I had just moved to Perth. I had been in this place for about a year. And I was at the Claremont Shopping Center. And I was looking cute, you know, had little boots mm-hmm. on. You know, well dressed because you got to dress up if you're at the Claremont shop. <laughs> you got to dress Especially if you're black. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for saying the unsaid. So I'm just walking down that that little. There's a street behind the shopping center, like where the kebab, where the farm uh, Hungry Jacks is. So Hungry Jacks is here, and then the shopping center is here. You know. So I'm walking on that little street, and I'm walking this way. I had hair. I had braids. I bought it, so it was mine. Mm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm walking this way, and this white woman is walking this way, and as I, as we pass each other, she reaches out to touch me, to touch my hair. But I've never seen her. This is a perfect stranger. This is I have never seen this human being in my life. And I was so shocked, you know, like scared, you know, like you know, what are you? <laughs> I'm from Joburg, you know. <laughs> don't move fast <laughs> and um, and she touches me and I said, oh, you know and she said oh I'm sorry I was just touching your hair it looks so interesting and it was like this you know this this it's like first of all everyone you cut it all off. <laughs> <laughs> that's right she said that's not gonna happen again but then they just touch your scalp right but what was interesting about that moment was that it was 
a hundred percent example of how what happens when you historic when we talk about history showing up in the present. So it was this perfect example of someone feeling entitled to touch me because they feel entitled to own my body because there was a time when they did. Right? That what's happening in that moment is that someone actually can touch me because I have no right to say no. And that my saying no would be perceived as anger. That I, I'm trapped in that moment because I can't react too violently because I have to always be the one who's in control and who doesn't lash back because that's not appropriate. Because the weight of history is on me that says the black one is the angry one, the intimidating one, the scary one, right? So it's a moment in which you are both needing to protect yourself and defend yourself and utterly incapable of doing so properly. It's such a metaphor for so often the situations that we find ourselves in. Um, that's really interesting because when you think about that scenario there and that manifestation of you know, one or two years, three years, let's try 200, let's go 500, right, of that kind of oppression and that kind of feeling, as you said, you've got to maintain calmness, as potentially your children are taken from you, you know, because they're a commodity at, at that point, especially from my background, so they're just a commodity, <coughs> so how does that impact on the family unit, as in, can I parent, can I kind of bring these kids up to belong to me, or do you, or do you kind of have that distance, because at any, any moment in time, they're gone, never to be seen again. You know, that, that, that part of your family has just disappeared. And how does that impact generations of generations of those families? Ponder and think about kind of, I think the driver for me behind this was what I was hearing both professionally and socially around, especially in the US, because that, that was where most of the press was around um, why are they rioting? Why are they looting? You know, it's it's terrible. It's terrible. But why are they doing that? And not understanding that this isn't just about four or five weeks. This is this is five hundred years and something, and much longer in Australia. This kind of thing has been going on, and it's kind of like that suppression of oneself and to feel that numbness. And it's really interesting. I think a lot of us people of, of colour have been on a, a really amazing journey, especially over in, in the recent um, times to really unpack and look, look back. Me, myself and a lot of my friends have really kind of reflected fam family as well on that, on that journey and how it's really impacted us and just, just that feeling, what we saw and what the world saw, but people not willing to kind of understand the deepness of it. Because when we think about um, history, and when we look at um, things that we celebrate, and the, and the nostalgia around certain things, you know, I mean, it had um, 75 years of the end of the Second World War recently, you know, because of COVID, there wasn't the big celebrations, but there normally is, you know, Australia Day. We celebrate Which well, day? Well, <laughs> well, whatever day they want to call it, right? But they. Um, you know, it's a big event, you know, everything comes out and it's with, you know, and even kind of more recently, I've kind of just did a bit of research at 
In England, at school, we, we learn about the Battle of Hastings, which was in 1066, <laughs> 950 years ago, right? But every year, they hold a, a gathering, you know? So that we're happy to go back and celebrate and be nostalgic around some things. But that block that doesn't allow us to think more deeply about the oppression of us folk. What do you think, Ron? <coughs> I love being in this Buja. This is, this is where I brought my sons up and called my home. I'm not from here. Originally, I've arrived here and I'm a guest in this country, like so many more. He's what we call our honorary nunga. <laughs> <laughs> I love being able to walk around this place and see Balgas that have been here far, far longer than we have mm -hmm. as this is society. You talk about Battle of Hastings in 900 years. There are Balgas out there and around this place that are older than that. Mm. And we push them over and we put buildings and neighbourhoods in those places and we mm -hmm. remove the markers of what this place and country is and we remove it from all of you we sit on a veneer created by a society that wanted to call itself Australia and as that grew it didn't let you put your feet down on the ground and understand the stories that you were attached to and what you could grow of and from this country is old, so very, very old, and it's not disconnected from its culture and its place and its keeping of language mm. and its time. Celebrating who we are as Australians needs for us to put our feet down and understand that this is, you know, this is where our stories rest if you come here to call this place your home. This is the only you play it. Uh, you pay it, mm. I guess, you know. There are all manners of words in English for the shades of colour that we are. If you go back to any of our mobs language, we don't have that many words for those other shades of colour. <laughs> <laughs> How does that come about? How do we arrive in a place where in English you can insult someone with a darker skin in more ways than you can if you flip it? Mm. That stuff concerns me. And that's not yesterday's business. That's today. That's the space that we live in. And that's what we have to consider. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When we talked last week, Ron, you talked about some of those words and the power and danger and weight of some of those words. I'd love to hear you say a little bit more about it. Now, <laughs> as I try to dazzle you with my bald head. That was two weeks ago, man. <laughs> <laughs> if you said that was yesterday, I was still yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not. While Ron's thinking of those, I, will. <laughs> I want to know yeah, if you fellas succeeded in escaping the bullshit, so to speak, overseas yeah. by yeah. coming here, like how different or similar is it for you guys here in comparison to, you know, where you call home? Home. Now Sorry for saying yeah. <laughs> that, auntie. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really interesting, really, because that forms 
part of my story, but I'll share something. Why, why not? Because I mean, this is, this is yeah. also a part of the the connection that we share as those different shades. There, are, there's a similar grievance that we that is a through line for indigenous black minority mm. groups that we share. So, I think it's important for you guys to be privy to to how we have these kinds of conversations. That we just want to keep it real today. Yeah. And cover lots of things. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. yeah. So, for me, it's a diff- difficult one because since I've been in Australia, I haven't really experienced too much racism. In fact, I don't think I have. You know, well, I say racism, but there's the um, the micro stuff that's always there. That you know, not always there, but you know, I've taken a vow that just to not even allow that to slide anymore. Yeah. That's my kind of response and mantra moving forward. But Growing up, no, not growing up. I go, I go back. So when I when I kind of meet people here that have never met me, if I speak to someone on the phone, I'm going for a meeting. I can guarantee that I'm not expecting this black dude to walk through the door. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the first thing. And no one's ever fallen off a chair yet. But but the second and they part. They hold on to it pretty tight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the second part of that is that then they kind of um, <laughs> ask me, um, <laughs> but where are you really from? And then I kind of, I say, well, I was, I was born in England. They go, oh, no, 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 but where are you really from? And then I'm like, my parents are from Jamaica. And they go, oh, my God, because I think was, this land, Australia, has got an affinity with kind of cricket and West Indies and Bob Marley and that kind of stuff. So I haven't had one bad kind of um, um, experience where someone goes, oh, man. everyone's kind of really engaging and wants to know more and really wants to have the conversation, you know. So, and that's quite comforting because for, for the majority of my life, that wasn't the case. And so when I was growing up, I didn't think, I didn't, I was born in England, but did I feel British or English? No, society kind of made it very, very clear that I was not part of what fitted there, you know. Um, I didn't really feel Jamaican because my parents weren't kind of empowering me with all that beautiful stuff around my blackness. So I was just drifting through this, this circle of life, you know, and I had to pretty much figure it out for myself and come to that conclusion at some point in my life that I was a good person, you know, being black, being black was okay. And if you could imagine not having that feeling for the majority of your formative years, those real, those early years where you're forming as a person and to not have that thing that you can hold on to. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, pretty hard to kind of go back and kind of look at that but I think it's really important for me that I do share these stories because a lot of people think of black people in England and think we're all having a good time had a good time especially for my having a jolly time a jolly old time a jolly old time but yeah that's that's kind of the yeah it's the obvious the opposite for me I grew up in Africa and um, I I always joke to people when I when I came here I you know it was really the first time I <coughs> I was talking to some moms at school and it's the first time I encountered this whole idea of low self-esteem mm-hmm. I was like what's that I think I have a high self-esteem problem I, I don't even understand <laughs> <laughs> I was like what is that what 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 are you talking about because um, I grew up in the majority always mm. and not only did I grow up in the majority? I grew up in the majority and 
we were special. We were freedom fighters. Mm. So you couldn't tell us that my sisters and I weren't the most important little girls in the world. Mm. Are you kidding me? We are going to free South Africa. That is our job. <laughs> like, that is absolutely our job. And we will grow up to be the president of South Africa. That's what we're going to do. And then Nelson Mandela is freed. And then we're going home. Of course we are. Do you know what I mean? So it didn't... The idea that black was less than was like a very strange idea. Uh, I encountered it, of course, when I'm 10 years old and this, this you know, kid calls me a monkey on the playground and I'm like, who are they talking about? Because it was, um, so I think, you know, one of the things that I always find so interesting is when you talk about the range of our experiences, that mm. all of us come from a different way of coming to being black. That what is clear about, what is similar about our experiences is that there are some people in the world who think blackness is terrible, that the construct of what blackness means. But in the living of it, actually, our experiences can be so profoundly and fundamentally different. Like, you cannot, I, I <clears throat> the idea that blackness is not the thing that is most fetishized, wanted, beloved, <laughs> coolest, hippest, <laughs> you know, like all the, all those things. All of the synonyms. All of the things. <laughs> um, and that has been my experience growing up. Um, but I also know that that hasn't been everyone's experience, you know. Yeah. That's cool. a lucky thing. That's a lucky yeah, thing. Yeah, it's cool enough, because we're the coolest, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got mum jokes. I'm not going to apologise for them. Yeah. Ron, you found any words or what? Nothing now. Two. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the struggle that I have growing up in this place is we live as Australians by this word that's, that is mate. You know, we have this, this mateship that is bandied about that's something that should be honoured and held on to and, and celebrated uh, because that's what makes us Australian. But actually, our society really struggles mm. to let that value of mateship really come to the come to the fore. You were talking about, you know, like the, the being able to be in the, the majority, and, and I I found out at a very early age <laughs> uh, what that minority meant uh, growing up where I grew up in Geraldton, and how to react to um, the looks or the the sounds that people would make or the things that they would say so that I could disappear. Um, I learned at a very, very early age how to disappear in plain sight and not be there and hide. And I think so many of us countrymen who have been on the receiving end of this, whoever we are, you know, in whatever shade we might be wearing, know what this game is. We've played it all too many times. We've been made to feel ashamed. Uh, and in places that sometimes completely surprises, yeah, or not, maybe if you're in this country. What many people here probably don't know about me is I spent 10 years in the military. Being out of the military, I was just an abo or a coon. But if I put on a uniform, I was a soldier or a sailor or a digger or a mate. It took the uniform another skin for me to climb into, for others to accept me for who I was. And when I took off that uniform, I was back to that other, 
that negative. And I'd get flogged with that. I think uh, it's not. It's still not an unusual thing, you know. I once arrived in a pub in uh, South uh, South Sydney, where I was with a group of sailor mates. We'd just come off the base. We'd finished some training, and we walked up to the corner bar, and 15 of us walked into that space. This is you know mid 90s. It's a pretty flash bar. Pretty. Oh, it'll be all right. We thought we'd be good going in there. And, the bloke just looked at us and gave us a disdainful look, and I thought, oh, he, he doesn't want a bunch of rowdy sailors in here, that's all right. And then he says, no, no, looks at me, points at me and goes, you rest, rest of you fellas can stay, but the abbe doesn't drink here. He can go. And you might think that that's an old story, but it's not. I'd heard it many times before, so it wasn't something that was unusual for me. And I thought, well, mate, that's 15 sailors. You've just lost a dollars out of <laughs> That's a lot of money. It's going to hurt your bar. <laughs> we're, we're gone. Come on, you mob. Let's go find another one who wants our money. I didn't care. But we got out the door when two or three of my mates stopped at the threshold. And then they had a bit of a chin wag and they went, no, Ron. No, that's bullshit. You're our mate. And they went back on the bar. They had a conversation about it that ended up turning the place upside down and wrecking it. <laughs> I'm talking about extremes. But the place that I lived in for 10 years meant that the person who stood right there and kept me alive and safe had to be my mate with a black, white, or brindle, gay, straight, or otherwise. And I had to rely on them with my life. The funny thing was, actually, the next day, yeah, the I got the, the next day actually <coughs> the police came to, to chase me up at the naval base <laughs> and um, I was called to the front office uh, down where the chief, chief naval person was and they said uh, we, we're here to pick up uh, the abo who started the fight up the bar <laughs> <laughs> and the chief naval policeman looked at the sergeant who turned up to pick up this abo and said now abo's here mate just sailors see you later We get rescued in some of the weirdest situations and we get handed them. Mm. And I, I just don't know how the mix sits. We get rescued. It's alright to cry too, brother. <laughs> it is, it's alright. I wish I could. We've been living there a long time. Too. I'll tickle you around that corner. Don't you dare. <laughs> Wait, I'll run out that door. <laughs> You know, I've, I've been undercover most of my life, to be honest. Apart from the years that I used to be the water boy for my dad's footy team in the Great Southern. <laughs> my own Abraham family nicknamed me Nikki now. Nikki and Charmaine and all their kids nicknamed me water boy. Pointing to my niece at the back there. Um, but the pain I carry is from being one of those rescuers. Standing on the sidelines. See, where I grew up in Pingley, which is about 160 kilometres inland from here, a bit south, in the Wheat Belt, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a town where I was related to most of the school. Weren't the majority, but also all the whitefellas there were, were solid. And it was because of sport, I think, and the fact that all the Nyunga mob in the town <coughs> were good workers. They worked the land. And they got on good with the bosses. I remember driving um, trucks out there doing the harvesting 
in the land. We used to go out to Fairhead's farm and, you know, pick all the mushrooms on the weekends. Big trailer load, and I'm talking like, you know, big record size mushrooms and things. And just being on the land was awesome. As I got older, I'd go out to the mission, wandering mission, where my grandfather used to look after it for bits of time. You get older and you get more savvy. You know, school was fine for me. I didn't get called anything derogatory, but the only thing I recall, I mean, maybe I've blocked things out, but the only thing I recall was my own cousins calling me mana mana when they found out I was also Chinese. But then you get older and you, you start high school. What happened with me is my grandfather, his name is Don Farmer. He's been gone for almost three decades. He used to be the director or the manager of uh, the Aboriginal Advancement Council. He was the manager of Aboriginal hostels in Western Australia for the whole state. They tried to get him into politics, but you know, he made a few trips to Canberra. I hear my grandmother talking about how he used to have you know, a couple of nips on the plane because the nervous was flying. Um, you know, he was involved in local councils and shires and um, his shoes are the ones that I've tried to step into. It was actually a Noongar activist who's been gone for a long time now. I don't like to say people's names when they pass away, unless it's been a, you know, a decent amount of time, but this activist, um, Yellow Richa is his Noongar name. And I was grieving the loss of my grandfather. This follows shoes that I, had, that I felt obligated or, you know, um, compelled in a way too to step into his shoes and carry on his contribution because he'd filled me with all this knowledge as a seven or eight year old sitting around in the front yard gardening you see we're always in the earth always in the dirt always there you know and when this activist and my my grandmother on my father's side the one that married the Chinaman took me into Yuriyakin um, I remember the car ride with them, those two, you know, and around the time they'd just come off long days and nights fighting for Swan Brewery and I think my grandmother was one of his, one of his jurip jurips, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> um, but I loved hearing about those stories too. I mean, the point I'm trying to make is when you're a child, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of, you don't notice things so much, but as you get older, you start to notice when things are more blatant in front of you and around you. And so I've, I've felt, there was a time where I felt incredibly sad that I wasn't as black as my siblings or my cousins or my family, mm. you know, because my grandfather is as dark as you. Mm. You wouldn't know, looking at me. But, um, <laughs> but it's true. I'll show you a photo later. I need evidence. Because I know I've got to prove it. I've got a history of having to prove it. No. Yeah. But there was one story that I'll share with you guys. When I started at Yuriyak and I was all of 17, um, just turned 40 last weekend, so however many years that is. And uh, we were doing, we were about to embark on a tour. It was called King Hit. The show was King Hit. And it was about um, uh, a follower that became a pastor, actually, for churches. He was a part of the stolen generation, put into the mission, didn't know his family, ended up in a boxing troop, fighting to entertain everyone. We took this show on tour down south. Our first stop was Mandra in the Peel area, one of the most discriminative um, places you could go to in that time, late 90s. I didn't know that then. 
The way I realised that was because we had arrived at our accommodation just outside of Mandarin, between Pinjarra, one of the main massacre areas, and Mandra. We had arrived at this caravan park because we're countrymen. We don't like to be in town, you know, or maybe that's just that curfew mentality we haven't shaken off yet. <laughs> but we're, we arrive at this uh, caravan park, which is near the <coughs> river there, because we need, we need a sanctuary, we need solitude, we need a place where, we can, where our performers can recoup to go and perform these stories that talk about the pain that we're constantly carrying. So we arrive there and our production manager gets out of the car, um, Jo Suckling, her name was, Wajila York from South Australia, Adelaide Crow supporter, and um, a very well-known actor from this country, Kelton Hill, was in the role at the time. I was 18, turning 19. I was still young, but watching, constantly watching. And uh, they get out of the van, the touring van we're in, and they go in, and we're, we're, all, we're happy. We're starting the tour. We're like, yes, we're taking the story down on home country so all our audiences can see it all. And we get there, and um, all of a sudden, we don't have anywhere to sleep that night. None of us. All of us. White follows and all. No one's got anywhere to sleep because apparently they're booked out. Now, this tour had been organised for weeks in advance, months. And that, that shocked me, because I thought, well, I don't know what I thought, but coming from a small town where everyone got along, really, we all got along in those small towns. And experiencing that in my first year out of my traineeship, so I did my traineeship in performing for two years, and my first year out of that, traveling with this, this show, with some pretty awesome people, um, and at the start of the tour, mind you, was like, whoa, we don't have anywhere to stay in our own country telling this story about a, resilient, a man of resilience and heart. This, this fellow, you'd see him, I mean, you could tell he was a boxer, but he's like a big cuddly bear. So that, that opened my eyes again. You know, and that was 23 years ago, so I have lots more stories. No, but but the stories I have are from, from watching. And I've always felt the responsibility. I mean, I've never said yes to doing things like this because sometimes I don't feel like I'm of age or that I have enough um, direct experience that, you know, that, that I could share. But what I want for you guys to understand, if you can, is that as black people, brown people, indigenous people, whatever label in English you want to give us, we are empaths. We are people who stick together. We are people who put family first. And whatever my sister's feeling, I feel. Whatever my mother feels, I feel. Whatever my country feels, I feel. So even if it doesn't happen to me directly, if it happens to the people around me, if it happens to this fellow, I don't even know him. <laughs> but I know that I can relate to what he's feeling because I have my crying brother in my arms or I have my uncle in jail. Or I have, you know, my, my cousin in the grave. These stories are relatable, so that's what brings us together. But at what point can we have the joyful stories bring us together? You know, and that's why we wanted to have a yarn like this with you guys. So it's not just about, you know, oh, you should know this and you should know that. <laughs> you should like, do that. No, get to know us. But I, yeah. I, I think that, you know, when you... Part of the difficult thing about racism the R word, is that the injustice is so inherent. It's so obvious. You know, here's this 
group of actors who have done literally nothing wrong. There is that it always hits you. You're just living, and then this thing happens. That that evening, it's just on. Just go on sundown. We, I think we were just too happy and black. You know, like <laughs> yeah. You just what do they call it now and. Brother boy, the other day, oh yeah, I got picked up for DWB again, driving while black. It's like, oh okay, <laughs> yeah. I'll, t- I'll tell you this down real quick. Um, one of the legends of the Nyunga acting um, community. Uh, she's actually a sister of Pop Jack Davis. She married a collard. She married into my family, and um, it was her burial ceremony. And her son had asked uh, myself and one of my cousins um, to to. Uh, do a burial song for her. And so I said, yes, I would, it would be an honour and a privilege. And uh, we're getting ready to go to the, the burial ceremony and we're driving in the car on the north side here somewhere and I had to pick something up to take to Karakata, back around there. And um, we're driving on the road and running a bit late, but I, I don't like the, the speed because when I'm you know, preparing for something like that, I'd, I'm focused on that. I'm not so worried about things. Anyway, this car came around, and I don't know whether she was on drugs or what was going on. She's just panicked, but she screams through the window at me and my sister girl sitting here. She was dancing with us on the day, and I'm driving along to um, old girl who we're burying her granddaughter's house to pick something up to take. And she's driving past angry, and she goes, um, something about driving or something or other, you black bitch. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> oh my god. People usually think I'm like Latino or something else. I'm like, thank you. She kept driving up the road. <laughs> it's the only time I like being called that. Anyway. <laughs> or if it's my cousins or something, mucking around in the family, but no. Colin. <laughs> yeah. What? You have something to say. Oh, I've got loads to say. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting hearing the different kind of di- dynamics of blackness and experience and minority as in majorities. Mm. And for me, it's, it's a lot of pain, you know, and, and, and now I can speak from a, a real place of healing, you know, I'm not, mm. it's, it's, the scar is not o- open, but it took me a long time to get to that point. My father um, sailed from Jamaica to London in 1961. So he was part of a kind of a real big wave of West Indians going back to the motherland, as it was called, because Jamaica was part of the Commonwealth and, you know, the was imperialism. That wind, was that Windrush? Yes, it was that, Windrush that generation, generation. You, you know, it was that generation. So they came with, with hope and they were going to this place that they kind of, you know, everything um, about English pol- politics was in, in, in the Jamaican system. You know, we had pounds and shillings and driving the right side of the road. All the um, curriculum was based on that of uh, an English school. And so, yeah, so they, he, he sailed across. It took him like between two or three weeks without, you know, and I say in my story that I don't think he had any idea what was going to happen or what it was going to be like for him. You know, for my kind of, what, what I know now is that they all went thinking the, s- the street's going to be paved with gold, you know, perhaps. But he got there and it all dried up, so perhaps it was on the trees. Well, hello. Hey, hello. Yeah. And it was only kind of in recent times, as I'm kind of really re- reflecting a lot around that and the journey, that as he was sailing across the Atlantic, you know, 500 years before that or thereabouts, my direct ancestors were being taken from Africa. 
in the opposite direction, you know, as the kind of middle crossing of the Atlantic slavery triangle. So that was, to me, that was very hard to kind of, kind of accept and, and, and understand that, you know, direct descendants were kind of just taken, you know, chained next to one another, you know, and because, as you know, in Africa, the, the, this, uh, you know, each nation has got tribes of inner tribes and stuff like that, so they could have been chained next to someone that didn't speak the same tongue. So for three months, sailed across the Atlantic, you know, in a cesspool of misery and, and, and yeah, I, I would, you know, it'd be great if some of you can just go and check out the condition of a slave ship for um, Africans tra traveling ac across and, you know, I think cattle had a better kind of a experience because at least they had hay, you know, we were on wooden slats and stuff like that. So, yeah, so it, it is really difficult for me to kind of speak about this. Even now, my experiences of kind of having racial abuse every single day of my formative years, mm. every single day as a child, going to school and facing that, you know, and people say, you know, what was, you know, kind of, I can't really understand, and I, I say now to, to people, think of that worst time in your life where you've, um, you didn't get picked for a sport team or you kind of split up with a partner or you didn't get that job or just a, a time where it kind of hurt for a bit. Mm. Hold that for a childhood. Mm. Hold that pain. Mm. And what does that, what effect does that have on your psyche? Mm. At 15 years of age, I sat with my mother after being on a, a, a trip and I said to her, um, I wish my skin was white. Mm. Maybe we could have swapped. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we could have. That would have been great. Yeah, I'll tell you what. If someone would have said, Colin, here's a tablet. Just take that. I would have taken it. Mm -hmm. So could you imagine what would bring a child to want to... Mm. It was the pain. Because yeah. instantaneously, my life would have been different. Mm. I would have still had the day-to-day -day stuff that everyone experiences. And I'm not kind of saying that's, you know, disrespecting anyone's kind of... Um, troubles or journeys but this thing you're never off you're never off I'm always on you know apart from today because most of you know I was black before you came but <laughs> if, if, if I go into a, a meeting or, or I'm presenting something and I don't know anyone I've still got that that anxiety of what are they going to think if they don't know that I'm, I'm black I'm, cause I'm, I, I think until I start kind of speaking about stuff and oh, he knows his content, you know. He's like, okay, we can we can relax in and and listen now. But that is something I, and it's not massive, but it's just that that, that thought still of having to kind of think differently. And I think a lot of the stuff around how I think, and anyone that's black from overseas may get this. If you live in the West, a Western world, that the number of hats I I have to don. So I'm here now. I kind of look a certain a certain way. Did you but mean it literally? Yeah, my hat comes off. But if I take my <laughs> m my hat off, then I can drop drop into Patrick and say, "Well, I'll go on and all them kind of thing." There, there's only one guy in the room who can understand me. I say, "No." <laughs> no, I can understand you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, and that's and it took me a really long time to kind of appreciate and understand and kind of love my heritage. Now I will say I'm a Jamaican man, but I'm very proud to be born in in the UK. But it traumatised me. That you know, most wow. of my experiences it tra traumatised me. And I am very fortunate that for a lot of people, that first generation born into that mm. didn't survive. As mm. in, through 
crime and the police were just a reflection of the community at the time so we had mm. racists and it was so overt at mm. the time you know mm. I, I, I listened to a podcast a while ago about the first British um, policeman I think this is in, in like the mid 60s and he recounts a story that he was in Covent Garden on the beat walking around you know and it's just in the summer and he says that a police car a police car he's a policeman right with two white policemen in it stopped window went down and said you black bastard mm. and this is like a tourist spot so you, you can imagine that that he's own how do you feel you're in the police you talk you spoke about the army but these are your fellow brethren that are meant to be there kind of if anything goes down they've got your back mm. so for him to experience that mm. he was the first black guy but my life was littered with numerous mm. events like that you know kind of having to run for your life being spat at, you know, kind of, it's, <coughs> does someone ever get over that? Do, do we ever get over that or do we just suppress it? Do we kind of... We tuck it away, don't we? Oh, really, really deep. Yeah. yeah. I see I've got deep pockets, mate, but yeah. short arms, yeah. you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, 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 it is true and, and I think while we're speaking about experiences and, you know, this event wasn't just around Whoa, and what wasn't, wasn't, wasn't around kind of the negative side, it's about how, how do we move forward? What can we change, in, you know, as in collectively? Because like, like I said, um, both professionally and, and um, socially, the conversations I've been having, it's, why have I done what to do? And it's really bad, and then they go and put the kettle on and move on, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? And it's like, yeah, it's so sensitive and to na na navigate. It's about just having the con conversation. I implore you all just to have that conversation. I don't mind if someone trips up and says yeah. coloured instead of black or, or whatever, because yeah. then we can talk talk about it. But if we say nothing, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've got a quick kind of story about a recent event. A friend of mine, he's a, a mechanic. Okay, he's worked for Mercedes. He's, he's the same colour as me. He's kind of um, of um, Caribbean heritage, born in the UK, first generation. So he's a mechanic, um, time served, he, he works for Mercedes in, in, in Perth and he's recently wanted a change. So he's, on a, he's, he's gone for a job on the mine, he's, he's got it, Fan, fantastic, he can you know, start kind of looking at his life slightly differently. But as part of the course you have to go for an induction. <coughs> so he's turned up with about 15 or 16 other guys and they're, you know, and they're kind of, I think they've got two facilitators and he, it's him and another black guy and I think there was two young young black guys in the room and I think it was day two or three the facilitators come in and just ask people okay wh what role are you going to be doing on the, on the mine and he said oh, I'm going to be a mechanic you know another guy said he's an engineer or something and it was these two black guys that said oh, I'm going to be um we're going to be offsiders drilling you know kind of young and the facilitator he, he must have been 50 odd or, or, or early 60s has kind of said all oh, right that's a that's going to be a really tough job you're going to be working like niggers wow so, this was probably two, two months ago. So, the systematic, you know, you, you know, how deep does that lie where that guy thought it was acceptable for him to say something like that in an induction? And how often has he said it? You know, how many, how many people has he, has he sent on mind sites empowered to start using that language? A young person going out there think, oh, right, yeah, it's, I can say, digging that. You know, a person that just consolidates 
every thought that they, they've had about black people because he's kind of dismantled everything that they may have seen positive that now he feels right, I'm in my right. So next time I'm at a barbecue, someone's thinking, oh, I could just bell that out there because he's got approval from this facilitator. Mm. And that was two months ago. Mm. You know, and this isn't normal. The passive stuff is still very relevant, you know, and my challenge to my non-black friends is to, if I'm not there and you're at a barbecue with a room full of white people or whatever pe people, whatever background you're from, and you hear something. Ignorant people. Yes. That's yeah. What, yeah, yes. <laughs> Will you challenge? Or can you kind of, you know, and it's not about taking someone down and having a fight and running around in the, in the dirt with your wife and your kids there. It's about kind of, what well, you can do. It's, it's, it's about... Talk about it at the next barbecue. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's about having those, those conversations and being prepared to say it. Yeah. That is not acceptable. It's about champions. You know, you heard me mention, you heard me talk about mateship. Mm. Now, a mate doesn't just pat someone on the back and say, oh, you know, good on you. If we were really going to talk about how you could be a good mate to us, the society and each other, mm. a mate challenges someone. Smiley. But they can do a match, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, mate, a mate challenges people about how it is that they behave. Mm. A mate sits here and goes, oh, yeah, steady up, mate. You really shouldn't be saying that. That's that's out of order. Yeah. Mm. I do that all the time. Yeah. And one thing I've kind of you know again reflected upon this whole COVID thing, right? That the amount of again, I said, we we use communities non-white, non-black. Sorry. You can say we could say we know what you mean. Nidian. Yeah. Who's that? Nidian. Non-white. Yeah. Or yeah. Or non-black. Sorry. Non-black. Yeah. Not my non-black friends, right? You can you can say. What? You can use the language however you like. Yeah. 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 Non-white, okay. that's right. Okay. You can say white. White? That's not an insult, white? it's just a description. Like black, like brown. Thank you can just say what we mean. Okay. Why don't you tell okay. us white people? What do you like to be called? Let's do a consultation. White? Uh, white? Wow. Anything, anything, uh, is, anything is fine as long as it's not white trash. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, during the COVID, and then we had the, the George Floyd events, okay, um, when none of my white friends in, in Australia text or called and said, how are you doing? Has this affected you? Or just wanted to see what's mm. going on? And they said, well, I didn't really think. But then on the, the other hand of that, how many of them were sending messages of warmth around the world during COVID? Keep safe. Don't go out. You know, is your family okay? It was en masse. So again, it's this... It's I was at an event. Yeah. And... Well, a gathering. And there was some sort of response about, you know, COVID being just so hard to deal with. And all I could think about was the amount of syphilis and whatever else landed on this shore when the first boats came and how they almost killed an entire people through, you know, making our women infertile. Let alone smallpox, measles. Yep. But I mean, and it's not a comparison, it's just like, please don't talk to me about your COVID struggle. I mean, I'm living it too, and I, and I can appreciate that it's hard for you, but it's just another speed hump for us, in a way. I don't mean to disrespect anyone, but that, that's my thought. It, it feels like oftentimes what is lacking in terms of people's perspective on a moment or on what's happening is, is history. Is that, like, I am such a 
big proponent of knowing <coughs> history because if we know mm -hmm. what has happened, we are able to put ourselves in a, you know, we're just a small little thing on a long continuum and it helps you to understand why it, it, it might be that a community realizes how fast they have to move to ensure that they stay alive, mm -hmm. right? Um, I was speaking to a woman in Hawaii the other day and she was talking about the incredible things that they have done on some of the smaller islands in Hawaii to make sure that COVID comes nowhere near them. Mm -hmm. And she said that one of the hallmarks of their culture, which is a very much shared with many indigenous cultures around the world, is that the hallmark of their culture is observation. Mm -hmm. Close observation. Before you can take someone's temperature, you can see if there's a fever coming. You, you observe what is happening around you. You observe closely those who you love. You are able to detect. That's just, like, that's what resilience looks like, right? That is historically what resilience has looked like. And so for them, when they heard this COVID thing was coming, and this has happened across this, you know, country called Australia, currently known as Australia, that, you know, indigenous communities were like, hell no, right? Particularly remote ones, okay? This is a real existential threat, right? And I do think this idea of how important it is to understand what has gone before, whether you call it history, whatever you want to call it, yeah. it's, it's super important. It's, it's seven something, and I want to open up for, for 722. And I want people to open up for conversations and comments and, and questions. Annabelle. This one's uh, for Colin. Um, I was really interested to know when you were feeling that pain as a young man um, of being, you know, the first generation, and you were caught between the two cultures. Was that openly discussed in your family or with other families and people in your community, or was that something that was a very private? thing that you felt unable to talk about? Yeah. Your last comment around the, the privacy of, of those inner thoughts. Um, for us as kind of Jamaicans, West, West Indians, um, my parents, yeah, and myself are a product of slavery, right? So I don't, sometimes I think, were we the, were we the fortunate ones that, that, that survived the journey or were we the unlucky ones because if we didn't survive then I wouldn't know any better I wouldn't have been here you know but we, we survived and we've, we've, we've endured the hardships um, on the island it's they were poor you know most of the, the majority are poor but they knew their place they, they, they knew where they were you know most of the money was in the hands of the white people you know so they kind of knew where, where they were so they didn't experience racism as such so, and they didn't expect that when they came to England so they didn't have the tools. And it was only in late, later life that I kind of realized that they never had the tools to kind of deal with. Their, their focus as any migrant parent to, into Australia or any other country, especially back in the day, it was all about the hustle, mm -hmm. providing that the, 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 they weren't educated in that, in, in that sense. And, you know, so there was no empowerment, really. I never got, got told once about the beautiful things about Jamaica, it's something I could ho hold on to. It's only since I've been there several times where I do now get that deep feeling of home, that part of me belongs well, you're part there. of the majority again. Yeah, yeah, and it's such an empowering feel feeling every time I, I go back. And 
I just kind of suck in the air and feel feel this is part of me. But during those, those times, it was pretty much me on my own with my thoughts. You know, um, I think my brothers and sisters were perhaps going through the, well, they were going through the same things, but we all internalised it. Yeah. You, you know, so and like I say, how does that suppression of one's feelings and one's ability to kind of put things out there how does that kind of live within someone as they kind of go into adult life without these tools you, you, you know it's um it's a yeah it's, it's very 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 tough but you know i'm i'm lucky i've I, i'm here i i've got an amazing life family and stuff you know and it's just i'm one of the lucky ones and you got kids yeah do they got, ask you about who they are? No, sometimes, sometimes, but, and this is the thing around now, where I'm at, my kids are mixed race, and, and I, at some, at some points along the journey, you know, especially in recent times, so much, but every now and then, in the 15 years I've been in Australia, I do question if I've done the right thing, because my kids have, have now lost the heritage and the culture that, that, from the 50s to the 60s to, to now, we're generations in. Each time I go back to England now, it's a, such a wonderful multicultural place of kind of, we're no longer, not even you know Asian, African, black, whatever culture who's been there a period of time. And now you, you go into a bank and you see black bank managers and this, that, the other, and the establishment, you know, you can get all your food types, the radio stations specifically for your interests, and it's, and it's amazing. And, and, when, when I'm here for a period of time and go back, I'm always almost taken back because mm-hmm. I go into certain establishments and I, all I see is, but with time, with time, hope, hope, hopefully we, we, we'll see the kind of the benefits as our young people, you know. And my thing, it's not just around, yes, it is around race, yeah, but I'm, I, I, I like to think of it more about humanity. You know, if it's if it's gender, I've got four four girls. Like I say, if 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 it's the LGBTQI community, if it's you know, it's it's all that and more. We can use this as a platform to kind of start thinking differently and being more open to people and being judged for you know the content of their character rather than the colour of their skin. Then I think we can make some progress. You know, and I think those small steps that we're we're making tonight. I think it's vital for us all just, just to allow, because I think halfway through this night, you've probably f- forgotten what you couldn't forget when we were black or, or of colour, but just by hearing us, it's, it's just people. And that's what we want it to be. We want it to be just about people and not kind of, I don't want to be having this conversation in t- 10 years time. Well, we will be, but <laughs> it might be slightly different. You don't want it, but you will be. <laughs> yeah. I would like to George Floyd's you know, things feel different to you, and if they do, how they feel different, what is, what's different? Okay. I'll take that question and I'll take that one in the back. Yes, young man, yes. Me. Yeah. Young man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not right. As you know, I'm virgin, white, and white racism. And uh, I guess, do we need to get clearer about the different roots of racism in Australia? You mentioned history, the history of racism towards people of colour from other countries was one of exclusion and the history towards Aboriginal people was one of, I mean, genocide really, the history of genocide and what we carry from that. And do we, uh, are we going to change things unless we get very, very articulate about where are 
racism comes from differently for different groups. I like to not. I, I like to accept that there have been. Uh, not, not, not like to. I'm not saying it properly. It is the case that there have been mass massacres of indigenous people in this country. I find the word genocide erases the fact that people have survived. So I, I struggle with that. I don't, you know, so we can, that's something that we can talk about. I understand the point you're making, but just to, again, a note on language and I, we can we can put that out there. So two questions, one is about, has there been a shift post George Floyd? Are you feeling that in the air? And then the second one is about the roots of racism and recognizing that there is a difference between how different kinds of black people are treated in this country. So opening it up to whoever wants to. Do you want to have a go, Ron? Go Work it back to front, talk about the, the yep. second question. Yep. I think the truth, we say stolen, the, the euphemism stolen generation that's bandied about talking about the nature of some of that fallout from those times doesn't spell out the violence committed mm. against our Aboriginal women by white men who came and took what they could take in order to make the subsequent generations that then got managed in the way they were as an embarrassment to the, to the nation, to the states were trying to grow powers to be then. We don't talk about how that value has stayed uh, still floating at the top, I guess, like a fuzzy scum. Uh, it impacts upon us still as a society today. We don't own it like it's something that that is of us today. Our society doesn't challenge it as it's, as if it's a today thing. Because if we did, we'd be talking about it honestly, and would be just that point you're saying you're a product of slavery. Put up your hand here if you're a product of slavery in this country, in this room. There's a whole pile of us from all kinds of different countries, all kinds of backgrounds. If not directly, indirectly. And perhaps maybe five generations ago where your family was manipulated and shifted and changed. We don't talk about that by way of our history. We live in that veneer where we make our Australianism comfortable. Mm. And we teach all of you to accept that Australianism as who you are as Australians. Rather than just say, hey, you know what? Why don't we talk about the truth and be honest about it? Because actually together, to the, together, we're grown up enough to go, yeah, actually, that was pretty bloody ugly. And I'm not going to let my kids do that today. I think if we actually spoke about the nature of what that is in today's language and treated it as if it was something real and not past and gone, we might have a chance to actually begin a proper yarn about it. It's very true, Ron, like, like you say, about the things that we're willing to go back and talk about like 1066 and, you know, kind of all these celebratory events across the world, how people celebrate kind of wars and and history is always about, you know, the, the people that were conquered, you know, you never hear too much about the, you know, the ones that were, about the, yeah, about the people they've taken stuff from. And your question there about this, this time, it does feel so different for me, personally, it feels it feels so different and that is what I'm hearing on mass and and there's been some great content some great information out there and and this isn't that another thing about kind of when people say I don't know what to say or do or, or whatever you know there's this thing Google 
I, I don't think they've. Um, in, I don't think the restriction on the black side of Google is still locked, is it? <laughs> no, yeah, my free. password kind of gets me into Google, right? So, so yeah. So, so some of the stuff I've heard, I heard a great kind of um, talk from a. I think her name was Kimberly Wright, and she speaks so eloquently about kind of the why. You know, it's not about the what; it's about the why. And I'll give you just a kind of um, a piece that I take, and that, and now I, I used. I don't call it my own because it's, it was her thing, but it revolves around the game of Monopoly. So if we're all sat here, some of you may have heard this, if we're all sat here playing Monopoly, and us said, in fact, you guys can't pay, play for the, five, for the first 500 rounds. And we're just gonna play between this and we're gonna just you know, kind of amass all this equity, all this equity. But then, then comes a policy saying that we've got to be more inclusive around this. <coughs> but we've already got loads of stuff, haven't we? So that's okay. But so then we say, okay, you can now join in. But for the next, you know, 50 goes, you still you, you can earn a bit. But because we've got all the land and everything, we're going to start taxing you for that. Okay. So how do our generations ever get equality? It, it's going Smash to the capitalism. Yes, it's going to require us to give up some of our stuff. I'm giving up nothing. You giving up something? No, I'm not giving up nothing. So how do how how do we bridge that gap? How do we bridge 500 years? Because the more money that they're going to get, and we've got to chase and chase and chase, we're never going to get there. We are never going to get there unless society starts saying that. And we can't go back and change things. I fully accept that. But it's like I said, it's about. What we do now is about what we do now, and you put really eloquently again, it's run about kind of, yeah. it's all of us it's participating. But it's, all, but it's more than emotions. Yeah. It's the system. Yeah. That the system yeah. is working exactly mm. as it's supposed to, to do. That the system is designed for some people to win and some people to lose. Yeah. And the decisions are that the people who were going to lose were of a certain color. And as that changes, the metrics change for who's going to lose, yeah. right? But that's absolutely mm. smash, smash the patriarchy yeah. and smash, smash capitalism. I want Kali to answer this question and then I see a question of hands here. By show of hands, who's driven on the Graham Farmer Freeway? Put your hand right up in there and hold it up very high, please. I want one of you with your hands up to tell me who that man is. <laughs> <laughs> Shout it out. Okay, in the back. Here, brother. Here, pardon. Who is he? Who is he? He's the uh, played for Geelong, West Geelong man, West Geelong Champion. Anyone want to add to that? Greatest footballer probably this country's ever produced, I'd say. Of course, stolen generation, very tragic uh, upbringing, remained very calm, and um, I think so dignified and a man of immense talent, absolutely immense talent. Anyone else Stephen want to add Hall to that? has done a beautiful book about him, but it's recommended reading. Anyone else want to add to that? My grandfather was an only child. He was put in Sister Kate's and never was around any of his family. When we speak about what happened to Aboriginal women, I, I think about my grandmother, Nana Eva. She's my great-grandfather's sister. You see, Polly 
Pop Graham, to me, was my grandfather's first cousin, but in our kinship he's my grandfather's brother. And even more so because he's an only child. And he was taken off Nana Eva because, well, she, it was just her and her child. Pardon? Aniroma? I said he was fair. He was fair. In manner and in colour. Hey! <laughs> you fellows should, or you ought to, know, know about the history of the people of this place. The only way that this place that we share is ever going to change is if our relationships improve. Now, when you're dating someone or you're wooing someone or you're in courtship or whatever, you don't just get with them and you don't know anything about them. You take time. Well, I want to get to know you first. You know, who are you? Who's your family? What, what do you do for work? How are you, <coughs> hang on a, you know, it takes time to get to know somebody. <coughs> that time <coughs> ought to be spent to get to know the people of this place. You know, strip back anything that you know. When you're asking a question about is the racism different here b between or towards Nyungar people or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to, to people from where you're from, brother, or you're from, sister, it's, of course it is. Because these fellas aren't connected to this place where they scrape off the top <coughs> soil and then they go one level deeper and they take off the next lot of soil. Why? Because they want to get rid of all the artefacts. They want to get rid of all the bones, all the graves, so that there's no link from my people's oral history and the stories we know because with all due respect we don't need the books but the oral history that we have in this country connects us to these places and we know the stories of these places but they will take all the evidence away so they make us look like fools so we don't have any evidence to show them so where's it written? where's the evidence? so again we're like this we got nothing So the racism is different because we have that power of connection to our home. This is our mother. This, this mother here, this country, will cradle us all. When we die, you know, if COVID keeps us all here for the next however many years, <laughs> we might have to end up on top of each other. But, um, you know, this place cradles us and we know that. But the racism is different. From my own perspective, it is different. To the point where they have... Nyungas fighting with African mob mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know minority Asian groups fighting with other mob it's, that's not who we are the violence came on the boats Nyungar people were very harmonious happy people, we still are in everything that we've been through we choose joy over pain, that's not to say the pain's not there, but we choose joy because we have a life to live, as long as we're breathing, we're going to breathe song and story and joy and celebration. We might not show it to everyone, but a lot of our community are taking on the role of activist or ambassador or leader or whatever other English word you want to put to it, but, but there's a weight and we are tired. But still we have little children growing up, so do we show them that we're tired and, oh, you're a tired Nunga. <laughs> you, that's what we are, son. You know, you. I'm going to call you tired, actually. So I won't give you a new name. I'll call you tired. So. Yes. Comedy is a big part of our our lives because if we don't laugh, we're crying every day. You you'll see us. We're crying every day from the pain. 
To answer your question about the George Floyd, do I think things have changed? In, from my perspective, what I think has, has shifted is the connection between non-white people across the globe yeah. and, and, and the allies. Yes. And what we become as one is humanity. And the people who stand outside of that are the ignorant. But yes, I see that that has been the shift and the improvement. Because these little kids running around, your grandkids, your children, your nieces, your nephews, are our children of the future. This is one nest we share. One nest. And I get sick of my own young mob who shit in this nest. I get sick of white people who shit in the nest. I get sick of Asian people who shit in the nest. I get sick of anyone who doesn't appreciate what this nest is about and what we're all trying to step forwards for, you know? They're my words as a young person as a person from here and, and, and as a person who's still growing and learning and improving, educating, sharing, all these lovely English words. They're my answers and responses to those for now. Yes, sister. Um, so my question was more so related to the whole COVID thing and the racialization of policy and things of that sort. So I have a few friends in America that were telling me about how the enforcement of social distancing laws are so different, like like certain suburbs, yeah. where it's mostly white people. It's like police officers <coughs> don't really enforce that much. Whereas when it's more so black communities, there's such an exertion of like physical violence mm. on black people. And it made me think about the pathology that we put, or at least law enforcement puts on certain social detriments when it comes to racial categories. And it reminded me about like a couple of years ago, there was a whole story about African gangs when there's always been gang violence in Australia. So I was like trying to make a comparison, like COVID's affecting everybody, yet black people or indigenous people all across the world, especially in America, are being so brutalized by this issue. And I had very close family, friends and family, even here in Australia, that were brutalized by the police with this whole African gang scenario. So I'm just wondering like, why is it so much that we pathologize crime or we pathologize infectious diseases when it comes to race, you know what I mean? Do we really, I mean, we all know we don't have to even respond to that. Mm. I mean, <coughs> run, yeah. run wheel then. <laughs> I'm not just like to tell this. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, you can close your eyes and, and um, you can hear the noises of violence around there, but there'll be those who will immediately assume that the noise of violence comes from a particular group of people. Um, they'll look a particular way. Um, they'll, they'll respond in a particular way to you because of your colour. And I know because I've been taught actually that violence that has been done to me is actually angry white people. <laughs> and that was a lesson that I grew up in mm. in this country. It flips, but certainly the institutions, the, the, the way in which our societies have, have grown, have shaped have played a particular game of Monopoly that says that we're, we're, we're measured in a particular way that others aren't. Again, I think that shift in this country, and in fact in all countries, needs to come with the sense of... You know, I, I struggle sometimes because I want to be able to say we need to grow the hell up and, and take the responsibility that we need to, to step in and stand for as those who are going to be today's people together, as adults, to say enough, no bloody more. But we are grown-ups. 
and man, we hang on to some shit. <laughs> <laughs> We're misinformed by all kinds of, of guff, and we hold on tight. And that's why we need <coughs> all of us, in so many different kinds of ways mm. to change our society. We need champions for all of us as others to say enough. We all have to become healers, really. Mm -hmm. We all what have to caretake. I mean, you know, the Bible talks about your neighbour, mm -hmm. and you know, Nyungamok talk about your kova, or mm -hmm. if you can go through relationships with different, like, you know, be friends with your ex, surely you can be friends with <laughs> someone that. <laughs> you know, like. I just keep thinking that fellow who befriended, and we're talking about you know people who changed the, 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 the fellow in the states who befriended and converted members of the Ku Klux Klan, mm -hmm. and and then went onto yeah yeah well yeah that's a swag that's two or three fellows but yeah mm. who made it their mission to go why brother why do you think like that mm. pick one person this is a bloody big elephant you mob. One My bite at a time. One bite at a time. And you know what? The thing about this is that we can actually eat up this elephant if we want to decide to do it together. Any other that's the challenge we're at in this country, right? Eh? I'm just anxious to sorry. get my hands. No, no, that's sorry. Anyone else? Yes. Um, uh, I, I enjoyed all of this. It's been fantastic. Um, there was a comment. Um, Oh no. Oh, he's done it now. Yeah. That, that, that it's about relationships. Yeah. And uh, I, I've had this idea that, you know, hum, in, in human, if we're speaking about humanity, we are both the same and we are different. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've had the idea that actually the potential issue is that we don't know how to um, navigate, approach, meet difference. That actually at the bottom of all of it is difference. We should actually be embracing difference um, rather than rejecting difference. Well, I wouldn't and even. I'm just wondering what you guys I would choose to not even use the word different because that, that in itself is a barrier in a way. I think that you have knowledge that maybe I don't have or you know about something that I don't, so let's have a yarn and then we can mm. connect. Mm. Um, <coughs> But yeah, Colin's busting yeah, out of his Yeah, busted out of his <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Yeah, busted out of his Throughout my life, right, I've kind of had to adjust and kind of alter my culture so the, the masses don't feel uncomfortable. So if you think about that, think if I'm walking into this room and I've got Do you mean masses are in Massa? No. Massa, yeah. Yes, Massa. Yeah. yeah, and I've had to kind of... You know, kind of, um, I've had to kind of um, lower my Jamaicanism, yep. blackism to kind of... To make others copy. Yeah. Mm. How, how bizarre is that? That we have to kind of adjust just so people don't feel uncomfortable <laughs> around us. And that's the kind of worry for me. And when I speak about the generations coming through, if we do nothing as grown-ups and we kind of accept the micro stuff, the overt stuff, it's just banter. Or, and our kids, I work at a high school, and I see kids every day, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking them. They say, oh, it was only banter. And I'm saying, if you allow that to happen, 
what's going to happen when you're in the workplace and you become accepting of that? And so we've got another generation yeah. that are going to go through this cycle of just acceptancy and not challenging. And the people that are saying these, these things still feel empowered. And if they go home and, and their kids are hearing it, this is how it continues. So we collectively have to. We, we, we have to take those small steps and, and kind of chew off that elephant's yeah. leg or tusk or yeah. whatever, you know? Poor elephant. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Human beings are violent. I think the question about difference is important uh, because on the one hand, we have to accept that race is a fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as so soon as we buy into the language of difference, we are accepting that there is a credible and essential difference, and there isn't, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so the first thing is race is a fiction. <coughs> and there's no moment that has underscored that for me in this conversation, like when Colin talks about the growing up and feeling every day undermined yeah. in, in his blackness and saying, if there was a tablet I could have taken, mm-hmm. because... I hate to objectify, but you are a damn fine-looking man. <laughs> that is a beautiful brown yeah. skin, right? But just on a, on a purely objective level, you are a beautiful-looking man. And so, so but, but, it, but, it, but I, it's true, right? I second But it's a fiction. <laughs> Example of race as fiction that there that is a made-up construct, and that the the human imagination is so powerful that it can conjure this fake thing that makes people believe that there is something ugly or less than or subhuman, right? So that so on the one hand there is no difference, and then on the other hand, of course, there is a difference that happens when you emerge off of that ship and speak a creole Mm -hmm. that you learned when you were manacled side by side with other humans and that is such a triumph to learn that Creole. There is a difference of being uh, a Noongar person who is strong in country and, f- and, and from this earth. There is And does not even look Noongar. And doesn't, like, whatever that means. <laughs> whatever that is. And there is what it means to be South African and from a place where we're so proud of Nelson Mandela. All of those things are indeed different and that we are comfortable in that difference is important. I think um, often white people are far less comfortable with difference far less comfortable with difference mm. because Western society is so individualized. Like, you know, talk about having a number done on you in terms of a feeling of superiority and yet, in fact, a shackles mm. of, of, of a culture that makes you so, you know, fragile, so alone, so alienated from yourselves, right? Mm. So I think white people are often much less comfortable with difference than communities, multicultural communities, communities of, uh, of black and indigenous people, et cetera, et cetera. We've already celebrated the similarities. And so, but recogn- I think recognizing that the differences are not fundamental, right? That the differences are a fiction in terms of race, but that the differences in culture are what makes us be able to connect, right? Connecting through that difference, I think, is a fundamental sort of takeaway from this conversation. You all know she's a writer, right? For <laughs> <laughs> those, for the difference pointed out and used in language, you know what I mean? And, you know, like we're just talking about. Keeping alive that difference for, for all the wrong reasons does damages to all of us. So the person who might throw the word abo, coon or bung at me, letting that word <coughs> fall out of their mouth doesn't just hurt me. 
it does them as much damage too. Right. Mm-hmm. And it does every one of us damage because we let that, we let that uh, make-believe exist. Mm. And it stops <laughs> us going forward and actually becoming the community that we can. Mm-hmm. It stops us having the relationships <laughs> that we need to have with each other, whatever that otherness is. Mm-hmm. So that, that need to correct and arrest anyone who decides to take away those sorts of languages and, and think they're using them you know, in, in moments of power. Mm. Man, you've just put a whole, you know, rotten leg underneath yourself that could be whipped out. And we need to do it more often. Thank yeah. you. I think every oppression across the world, you know, even when you look at South Africa, you look at the civil rights movement in the US and slavery and what's happened here and, and even the Holocaust. These are all man-made things. Mm. You know, they weren't natural events that kind of just, oh, it just happened. There was decisions made around oppression, stolen generations. Someone yep. somewhere kind of yep. came up. This would be a great idea. Proper made up business. Yeah, this would be a great idea. It's like a game. Proper made up business. <laughs> yeah, made up. It's, like, it's like a game. So, yeah. of, of the of the worst order. Yeah. yeah. You know. I I think that's a, almost a good place to end. But I want to take if there's one last question because we've got about ten minutes. Yes, sir. Yeah. F- firstly, thank you very much, the four of you, for sharing. I, to my mind, as a white fella. There are a lot of my friends who people I know, not necessarily friends, who have got no experience of what it's like to be an Aboriginal person and what, or a black person of any kind. And I guess I've been lucky over the last decade to have a lot of Aboriginal friends. And I understand what you've been talking about. I've heard so much. And what makes me despair is how the hell do we change it? And, and I think the whole issue of difference most people in the world, whether you're Australian or Japanese or Chinese, you're afraid of difference. Yeah. And, and I think to say there is real no, really no basic difference. And one level is true, in another level is no help at all. Because to the average bloke in, in, in WA, they probably don't know any average white fella, doesn't, don't know any Aboriginal people, haven't heard the stories that you've recounted this evening and that I've heard from my friends over many years and just don't understand and to them it goes right over their head and and unless we could have these sort of conversations every day for groups of people I I despair as to how we're going to get to a stage where people embrace difference and are really excited about I want something different I don't just want the same boring old stuff in the western suburbs and I, I don't know what the answer is, don't but despair. certainly not. Yeah. Yeah. Don't despair. Yeah. I we hear are, you. We don't are despair. very hopeful. I'm very hopeful. I think, like I, like I said before, I think this time feels different. It feels different, and the fact that you guys are all here is, is like I said, I'm over, overwhelmed. What started with an, with an idea, mm-hmm. an email to Claudie, and here, here we are, kind of, you know, kind of six or seven weeks later. But... I think we start with language. It's about kind of how we use it and kind of having those conversations, being strong enough to have that chat around the water fountain or the coffee machine or, or, or whatever. You, you know, the, since at school, at the school we've got 200 staff and, you know, on occasions people have kind of come to me and said, so tell me a bit more, I want to kind of understand a bit more. And that is the start because it's the rip- ripple effect. If they can start understanding me and then kind of correcting someone in their own networks that's where, where it starts from you know there's so much 
fantastic content. I'll let Carly speak about some of the indigenous stuff that she can tell you guys directly to, but there's some amazing m movies, you know, kind of Selma, you, you know, The Long Walk to Freedom, you, you know, some amazing documentaries, podcasts, you know. Like I said, this thing doesn't have a lot for black people on Google. <laughs> it's accessible to everyone, you know, and it's and just pop some stuff in there and a multitude of information will c come up. Or is there? We put the lock back on. Decolonize, decolonize. Google is decolonized. Yeah. <laughs> Carly, is there any... They put a D in front of your name and I asked it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I had mum joke. That's yeah. a good joke. That's a good joke. That's a good joke. Terry, uh, we, we share a grief in losing um, a champion of the arts in uh, Yuri Akin's, uh long-running chairman has just passed away. Um, and, and it's tough for my grandmothers to even go through that process. There's three sisters, they call them the Reedy sisters. Um, so this past three weeks has been tough for our family because this old man not even that old really, but has spent 11 days in hospital and the family have been in and out of hospital waiting to basically either have him go or decide when to turn off the machines. Um, and now because of COVID, we are faced with the discomfort of a cap, a maximum of 300 mm. people at a funeral. Now let me describe a, a, a normal, <laughs> natural sort of <laughs> funeral to you fellas. Um, there's usually about I don't know, 500 plus service, and then there's usually about 600 plus at the gravesite. So um, they're having to go through a very timely thing, and time is our most sought after resource, and something we should value in ourselves, really, of how we spend it. But they're spending time inviting, like an A-list, <coughs> to this service, and seeing who can and can't, I mean, it's a lot of calls. And that's just, that's just family stuff, let alone what we feel from spending time with this fella and the influence that he's had, a positive influence on many. So I just want to acknowledge that you're feeling you know, similar grief to, to us in the family. Um, and my encouragement in response to the words you shared, and thank you for that, is for every one of you to not think that the only way you can make an impact or grow or learn or, or find out how to make a change is to come to events like this. You should actually start with your neighbour. Mm -hmm. You should start with the follower across the road or the kids down the road or, you know, the impact you can make in your own street and the joy that you can bring to your own street will branch out. You know, and for me as a Nyungar person, I want to infect people with happiness and joy um, because we need it. <laughs> We're tired. <laughs> like... We, we cry all, all the time, every time we're crying. Because we've got big families, there's always someone dying. <laughs> so we, we're crying a lot. And it's not a fake cry, like, oh, my auntie, I'll see you mob next week. You know, it's, um, you miss that person because we are a people that values time. We don't say, oh, we should catch up sometime. Yeah, da, 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 like small talk. No, if I say to you, look, be good to catch up for a cuppa, I'll rock up at your house the next day. She will. <laughs> <laughs> I rocked up at her house last night. I mean, that's what, who my people are. So just remember that. Don't try to be kind by saying, oh, you know, I would love to talk to you sometime. Because if you don't back it up, yeah. then you've you got months of, you know, work to do to get back to the stage of like, okay, well, I might take you seriously next time you say that. 
But honestly, work in your own street, your own suburbs. Go in circles. Because yeah. they create our town. They create our society. Don't go out of your nest to try and fix what's in your nest. And it includes your own family. I mean, we all run away from our family sometimes. They all, you know, gets a bit hard. But focus on your radius, you know. I mean, if anything, COVID is forcing us into that, really. Focus what's within your radius in a certain kilometre and make change in your own little community, you know, because those little changes link up and become the bigger things. From little things, big things grow, you know. Uncle Kev. Pardon? Sounds like an advert. It's actually a song, Kev Comedy. Yeah, right. Very important. Did you want to? Yes. Okay, so we've got a. So there's three people with cards underneath their chairs. Quick, check their shoes. And. Hang on a second. Your phone may have won something. Check, check the chairs in front of you and around you. One. Anna oh. Koski. <laughs> These, so if the, if the three of you, so each of you gets a beautiful sponsored gift from Gunagara. Good. <laughs> Don't say it like that because the first word is shit. <laughs> it's on the box. It's on the box. Oh, it's on the box. Have we found the fruit? Oh, Gungara. Gungara. Yeah. Have we got all fruit? Buffy Corinna's. No. See, checking no. another chair. Nice. It's like an Oprah moment. You get it. Negative. Three people get it. Don't get fight with another chair. Okay. So, so come and get your gifts. Okay. While they're coming up to get their gifts, everybody, please, may I encourage you, if you see. Any black person anywhere, say, hey, mum, <laughs> please talk to us. Yeah, but don't touch us. Hey, <laughs> 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 Or your hair. Um, or your hair. But just say hello, right? Just say, say hello. hello. Hang on. Hey, so we so one under them chairs, eh? We, we have, we have, we'll find the other people. I want to wrap up. It is exactly 8 o'clock. We are not known for being timely. We have been timely. Um, yes. Um, I just want to say that I really appreciate everything that has been shared today. Like, really vulnerable stuff has been shared today, and that has meant a lot. We have focused a lot on personal, on connecting. I want to address the issue of despair um, by reminding us that this conversation is far from the first. These people are not the only, that this is not the universe of conversations about race and racism and justice in this country nor in this world. People are gathering everywhere. People are saying hey to one another everywhere. People have been walking this very long. People have been walking this long journey for a really long time. One of the things about the post-George Floyd moment, which is extremely annoying and also beautiful, is the sudden what I call the great white awakening. <laughs> Suddenly white people are like, oh my god, there's racism. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey. we just can video Wait. it now. <laughs> so, so this is a long, long journey that has already started being walked a long time ago and will be walked for a long time to come. So despair is not the response. What is the response is huddle closer, think deeper, dig deeper, 
Um, and welcome to the beginning of your resilience building. That's yeah. right. You're gonna because when you stand up, you're gonna face some of the things that our and people be, have constantly had to be, stand up to. And be aware that you're just part of the walk now. Yeah, that's what it is. Not despair. Just part of the walk. Thank you, everyone.